A few weeks ago, I awoke to the news that a synagogue in my home state of Minnesota had burned to the ground. I was certain upon hearing the news that it was an anti-Semitic act of arson. I'm not usually one to jump to conclusions, but how far was of a jump was it, really, after the year we have experienced? Well, we learned a few days later, it was not, in fact, a hate crime. Rather, the investigation pointed to a devastating situation of a homeless man who started a fire behind the synagogue to keep warm. I had such mixed emotions. I was relieved, relieved that it was not one more on the litany of hate crimes against Jews this year. But I was also terribly sad, sad for this man who had no home, sad that this long-established congregation in Duluth, Minnesota had lost its building, and sad that the reality of anti-Semitism in North America had become so familiar to us that I was expecting the worst. My friends, the world in which we currently live is different from the one we inhabited just a few years ago. I grew up in what I would call the golden age of Jewish security in North America. Anti-Semitism was a thing of history books of my grandparents' generation. In my formative years, being Jewish was cool. Israel was in fashion. I never heard an anti-Semitic slur to my face, nor saw a swastika at school. Maybe I was lucky, but I think that my experience is typical for many Jews of my generation. Today, things are different. Within the last few decades, we have been witness to the resurgence of anti-Semitism in Europe. According to a survey conducted in 2018 to gauge the Jewish perception of anti-Semitism in Europe, 90% of the respondents reported that they had witnessed an increase in, in acts of anti-Semitism in the last five years, with one out of five sharing that they had been personally assaulted or harassed. It is not safe to walk in many cities in Europe wearing a kippah on your head or a magen david around your neck. For a while, though, Europe felt far enough away to go about our Jewish lives here without real concern. Perhaps we were naive or did not want to think about the reality of anti-Semitism in our corner of the world. What really grabbed my attention and the attention of so many in North America was the march in Charlottesville in August 2017, when white nationalists and neo-Nazis marched in protest of the removal of the statue of Robert E. Lee, a slave owner. These protesters marched holding torches, chanting the words, Jews will not replace us. What made Charlottesville different than other acts of white supremacy was that these men didn't wear hoods or hide their identity. 
Rather, they marched in khakis and polo shirts. It was frightening to watch it all out in the open, men bearing no shame of their hatred. Journalist and author Barry Weiss explains in her new book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, that after Charlottesville, our real fear now was that the once marginal haters, the neo-Nazis, the white supremacists, were no longer marginal. They had become the visible exemplars of a new political and cultural style that had overthrown long-standing sets of norms about tolerance, basic decency, and civility. And then things got worse. Last November's shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh marked the largest act of violence against a Jewish institution in American history. And just six months later, we experienced another shooting, this time at the Chabad in Poway, California. It's not just at places of worship that hate crimes occur. There have been numerous accounts of Orthodox Jews attacked on the streets of Brooklyn as recently as last week on Rosh Hashanah. And we learn from the most recent B'nai B'rith audit of Canada, the trends that we see south of the border are with us in Canada as well. Did you know that Jews are the most targeted religious group for hate crimes in Canada? And that from 2017 to 2018, there was a 16.5% rise over the previous year, a third consecutive year of increase of anti-Semitic incidents. And here in BC, anti-Semitic incidents rose by 126%. Today on Yom Kippur, there is great beauty in our coming together as a community. Yet among our joy, I need to acknowledge a fear that many of us feel. Some of us feel anxiety entering a shul these days. Many people are nervous to send their kids to Jewish school, worried what the future will look like for our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. But we know staying home is not an option. We know that we must stand up against hate and not allow it to prevail. We must speak out clearly when anti-Semitism appears wherever it appears. For those of us who, like me, have lived in the freest, most stable Jewish life of perhaps any generation before us, the question I ask myself is, do we know how to handle this? Do we know how to be Jews when the going gets tough? I know for many of you here, this has been a part of your lived experience, and you have much to teach us. Anti-Semitism is not a new experience for the Jewish people. It has been a constant feature of human history for millennia. Despite it all, despite the persecution, the expulsions, the pogroms, we are still here. Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people, lives. 
Today's anti-Semitism comes from multiple sources, from the extreme right, the extreme left, from Islamic extremism. As Deborah Lipstadt, perhaps the leading scholar on anti-Semitism today, she explains, anti-Semitism on the right and the left are essentially the same because they rely on the same stereotypical elements. Something to do with money, something to do with finance, that Jews will do anything and everything, irrespective of whom it harms or displaces or burdens. Both the right and the left share those kinds of stereotypes. If you want to learn more about today's anti-Semitism on the right and the left, I urge you to read Deborah Lipstadt's Anti-Semitism Here and Now and Barry Weiss's How to Fight Anti-Semitism, both published this year. They are excellent and important reads. But this is a sermon and not a book report. And so, rather than talking about the why of anti-Semitism, we need to talk about the how-to, how to live and commit to our Jewish lives, even when anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly head all around us. We are the heirs of kings, prophets, freedom fighters, poets, teachers, and moral guides who revolutionized human thought. We belong to an ancient people that changed the world. And from their experience, their courage, and their dedication, we can learn a great deal about facing the challenges of our own time. So if you will indulge me, I would like to invite you to travel back in time with me to four periods of Jewish history, about 1,000 years apart from one another, to find that secret recipe of Jewish survival in the face of anti-Semitism. I believe that these four stops on the timeline of our history can provide us with guidance for our world today. So we begin in Egypt, 1300 BCE. The first major experience of oppression of the Jewish people was, of course, our enslavement in Egypt. Our ancestors, who were slaves to Pharaoh, were persecuted because they were Jews. But before slavery, even Joseph, who held an incredibly high rank within Egypt, he dealt with anti-Semitism. Jews were made to eat separately and live separately from the Egyptians. The Torah teaches, they served Joseph by himself, for the Egyptians could not dine with the Hebrews, since that would be abhorrent to the Egyptians. So how did our ancestors who lived for 400 years, set apart from and eventually enslaved by Egypt, manage to hold on to their Jewish identities? A Midrash teaches us. Rav Huna said there are four reasons why the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. They did not change their, their language. They did not speak gossip. They did not engage in forbidden relations, and they did not change their Hebrew names. Every time we celebrate a baby naming or a bris, we bestow upon a new baby their Shem Kodesh, their Hebrew name, 
Every time we do this, we are continuing in the same tradition of those Israelite ancestors. What is more, the number of parents today who choose to give their children identifiably Jewish names as their everyday English name act in the same spirit. I've noticed that these kinds of Jewy names, as we like to call them in our family, have increased in popularity in recent years. It's becoming more common to hear in the halls of our religious school the voices of Ari and Hannah and Miriam and Levi. I pray that this will continue, as a name is such an important marker of identity. When I was a teenager, I remember watching an old movie about the raid on Entebbe. There was a scene where the terrorists went through the flight manifest to determine which passengers were Jewish based upon the sound of their name. I remember thinking to myself that had I been on that plane, that I, Carrie Archer Brown, could have easily gone free. But that I could have never lived with myself had I abandoned my people. Yes, a Jewish name might give an anti-Semite a target upon which to direct his hatred. But a Jewish name is armor that provides identity to the one who wears it. Knowing who we are, holding fast to our identities as Jews, this is one of the most important ways in which we thrive in our continuity as a people. In the generations that followed the exodus from Egypt, the Jewish people was strengthened and lived for a very long time with political sovereignty in the land of Israel. Much like today when we have a state of Israel to provide us with protection and a homeland, the Jews of antiquity dwelt in a time of great Jewish power. But as is true today, as we heard from Adi, things were complicated. And after the reign of the kings of Israel, the Jewish people, while still holding a temple and a religious center in Jerusalem, lived once again under the thumb of a foreign despot. In the time of Antiochus, the Syrian Greek ruler of Jerusalem in the second century BCE, things got bad. He is, of course, the famous tyrant of the Hanukkah story. Antiochus outlawed the observance of Judaism. Among the forbidden practices were the rite of circumcision, the study of Torah, keeping of kashrut. In our holy temple, he placed a statue of Zeus and sacrificed pigs on the altar. We all know the stories of how the Maccabees fought back and rose up against the Syrian Greek army to rededicate the temple. But it was not simply with their guerrilla warfare that they resisted Antiochus's oppression. Holding on to Jewish customs and observance, this too was how the Jews of this era fought back. True, there were Jews who thought it best to assimilate, to embrace the Hellenistic ways of their Greek neighbors. But giving up on Jewish practice leads to self-destruction. Today, in Europe, there are attempts to outlaw circumcision and kosher slaughter. Even here in Canada, anti-circumcision movements attempt to criminalize our sacred tradition. 
But the Maccabees of the second century BCE have a message for us. Keep the traditions. Honor Shabbat. Let the Jewish calendar guide your time. Assimilation is never an answer to anti-Semitism. Living Jewishly is the most potent form of fighting anti-Semitism there is. As Barry Weiss reminds us, in these trying times, our best strategy is to build a Judaism and Jewish people that are not only safe and resilient, but also generative, human, joyful, and life-affirming. So if you'll fast forward with me now to 12th century Europe, to Passover, 1144, in Norwich, England. A young man named William, a tanner's apprentice, disappeared during the week of Easter, which coincided with Passover. Charges immediately arose that the Jews had killed him as part of a ritual murder. Soon the anti-Semites of England accused all of England's Jews of participating in this ritual murder. The ridiculous and slanderous lie enhanced with the claim that the murdered child's blood was needed for baking matzah spread all over Europe, inciting massacres against innocent Jews. The Jews of the Middle Ages lived through some of the most difficult, multi-generational experiences of anti-Semitism in our history. They were resilient and moved and adapted quickly as needed. A few years after this blood libel, a young Jew named Benjamin Metudela, who lived in Tudela in northern Spain, began to travel and document his travels around Europe and the Middle East. In his diary, Benjamin wrote detailed descriptions of the communities in the hundreds of cities he visited. Many scholars believe that Benjamin may have undertaken his journey with the objective of finding out where fellow Jews could find sanctuary and safety. Listen to the portion of his writing as he concludes his travels. As for the towns which have been mentioned, they contain scholars and communities that love their brethren and speak peace to those that are near and far. And when a wayfarer comes, they rejoice and make a feast for him and say, Rejoice, brethren, for the help of the Lord comes in the twinkling of an eye. Benjamin Metudela reminds us of the significance of Ahavat Israel, the love that we have for the Jewish people. To know that wherever we are in the world, there is a community in which to find connection and safety. We are never alone in the world as Jews. When our ancestors needed to move to find safety, they were able to do this in many regards because of the networks of Jewish communities around the world. We learn from them that we must look for one, to one another for help and to help when we can and feel comfort in seeking help when we need it. This is what the models of Jewish Federation and the Joint Distribution Committee are all about. 
This is why when Orthodox Jews are beaten in the streets of Brooklyn, when French children are attacked in front of their Jewish school in Toulouse, when Jewish lesbians holding rainbow flags with Jewish stars are kicked out of a parade in Chicago, we feel it too and must do what we can to help, which includes speaking out and naming what is taking place. We have one final stop to make on our travels through Jewish history. The Shoah, of which so many of us have personal knowledge, survivors, and children and grandchildren of survivors. It is raw and present in our minds whenever contemporary conversations of anti-Semitism are raised. I want to share a story that I just learned a few weeks ago from a recent essay in the New York Times about a new exhibit at the Museum of Jewish Heritage called Auschwitz, not long ago, not far away. In January 1945, a man named Haskell Tidor began his death march out of Auschwitz. He was approached by a fellow Jewish prisoner who held out to him an object wrapped in a dirty rag. It was a shofar. A shofar that had been secretly blown by Jewish prisoners in Auschwitz. The man said to Mr. Tidor, I'm going to die on this march. If you live, take this shofar. Tell them we blew the shofar at Auschwitz. Mr. Tidor survived the march and ended up in Buchenwald, where he was liberated. Later that year, he joined a group of survivors aboard a steamship to Palestine. Off the coast of Haifa on Rosh Hashanah 1945, when he landed on the beach, he blew the shofar. If there is an artifact that symbolizes the hope of the Jewish soul, you'd be hard-pressed to find something more indicative than a shofar. Hope. Hope is the constant that weaves through our history. It tells us no matter the hatred of those who rise up against us, as Jews we always approach life with a commitment to hope and our eyes to the future. Our ancestors have given us a message of what to carry with us when we face the adversity of anti-Semitism. We carry with us the power of our identity, a commitment to Jewish observance and tradition, a love for the Jewish people around the world, and a dedication to carry hope in our hearts. This is the secret recipe of our survival. Your love of these principles, more than the hatred of those who despise us, will determine the future of Judaism. Amen. <laughs>